back to the bin. Hello. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. Da, 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 da. Her, Captain Swataro. Hi. Who we have with us this week? I think we shanghaied a new one. I think we shanghaied an old one. <laughs> he smells kind of heshy. <laughs> who we got? Who, who are you bringing up from the galley? I've been down to the galley. I was drinking some grog. Then I puked all over. <laughs> As a raisin is a mess. <laughs> well, yeah. well, that sounds like our good friend Chris Honeywell. Yeah. Or, Whoa. Or Chris Honeywell. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. good to be back on Back to the Bins. A yeah. long time not seeing you. It's probably been a couple years, I think, since I've been on, on Back to the Bins. I think the last Back to the Bins I may have been on was number 50. The last one I remember hearing you on was when you guys did the Superman Spider-Man mm, episode. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if that was before or after 50, but it was still it was a long time ago. That was before I was doing anything. A long time ago. Uh, every- Back in the early days of podcasting. <laughs> if you're listening and you haven't figured it out yet, this is episode I believe number 103 of Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and I'm joined by Bill Robinson. Hello. And Chris Honeywell. Howdy. Mike Bailey and Ahoy. Scott Gardner basically gave us... Uh, the old heave-ho. They gave us some <laughs> fabricated excuses as to why they're not here today. And we yeah. shanghaied Chris to join us. We'll make them walk the plank when they come back. You know, it's nice to be the Shanghai-er instead of the Shanghai-e for a change. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you've been Shanghai'd a couple of times, <laughs> and then there were then there were those those times you were Shanghai'd, didn't even realize we were recording, <laughs> and then yeah. said you had to go. Okay, I gotta well, go. There's that awkward moment where I'm at, at my cool rock and roll band practice, and I have to tell everybody, yeah, I have to be back by midnight because I have to read a comic book by twelve thirty and be able to give an oral report on it. <laughs> Hey guys, yeah, I'm sorry I can't stay and play cool music. I gotta read a book, <laughs> funny book. Yeah, I'm glad. I think I actually told them I had to read. I have to read a DC comic, Chris, Chris which meant going? nothing to any of them. Like, huh? What direct current? I don't get it. How sad! How sad that they don't have a life where they know what a DC comic is. The the one person who who would the, there's two people in my band who would know well. One person in my band at one point, but he lives in New Hampshire now, he basically owned every Marvel comic up till some point in the late 80s. And he would have he understood. And our bass player, he's a comic book reader. Everybody else there was just like, okay, comic books, huh? <laughs> you like those funny books, don't you? Chris is a little touched in the head. <laughs> I got them colored pictures with them scantily clad women. Yeah, just give him a pile of them. He sits over in the corner and doesn't bother anybody, which is not true. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have a nice stack of email that we are not going to read today. You're going to ignore it. Yeah, well, we're going to ignore it for today, and we were discussing it. If we get, we, we do enjoy getting the email, and if we get 
too backed up, we'll uh, take a cue from Hey Kids Comics and we'll do a special email episode. Uh, if we don't get too backed up, then we'll just try. Better and- than a she-mail episode. There <laughs> <laughs> you go, alienating our audience already. Well, just just am just, I? The, just the she-mail to the audience. <laughs> Uh, oh, sorry, she mails. You know I love you. <laughs> off the rails already. <laughs> okay, so how does this work, boys? What do I got to do? What do you get? What goes on in this? Well, the way we work it is we do, we do the Marvel, the DC, and then the Independent. And I got the Marvel today, so I guess we'll jump right into that right now. For my, do, oh, what was what was that, Bill? So who's gonna do their? Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee, and this is Paul Spataro with his book. You know, I, I was looking on Amazon, and they actually have Stan Lee MP3s for like 80 cents, but I don't know exactly what they say. <laughs> so, Blow but, yourself, true believer. <laughs> I definitely Thanks for the 80 cents, sucker. <laughs> yeah. I definitely want to find an intro bit for each, you know, each segment, but not yet. Uh, well, you've got your indie one. That's perfect. There's, well, there's, there's actually a couple to use for indie, because I was also thinking not only the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer independent, but uh, also you could have, uh, like, Kate, Kate Capshaw when she's yelling, mm-hmm. Indie! Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you could have Karen Allen, Indie, the comics are running out. I think yeah. we've used that, that, that joke already, haven't we? Uh, no. No, we? We tend to like an old cycle. <laughs> yeah, that's we... good. You're a green podcast. Recycle <laughs> <laughs> like our bits. <laughs> yeah, we still have to get on that. We do bits? Okay. <laughs> Inside joke. Hi, heroes. Fasten your seatbelts, because Mighty Marvel is about to take you to a new dimension. All right, well, back, way back when, last summer, we did a special Spider-Man episode uh, in honor of the Amazing Spider-Man movie opening up, and I did Amazing Spider-Man number 100 as my book. And I don't know how well you guys know that one, but it is one of my all-time favorite cliffhangers because the story, just to give a very brief recap, is uh, Peter Parker starts deciding that the burden of being Spider-Man is too much on his personal life, and he develops a formula to try and remove his spider powers and so that this way he could marry Gwen Stacy and live happily ever after. He takes it, he has all sorts of nightmares, and he wakes up, and the cliffhanger is he's mutated into more of a spider and now has six arms and two legs to be an eight-limbed creature like a spider. And that's, that's a great cl- comic. Yeah. That'll, that'll teach you. So, so I decided to revisit that, and I hit Spider-Man number 101 for today, which was released in October of 1971. It's got a 15 cent cover price, but it, if you look at it, it says still 15 cents, which means they were right on the verge of making it 20 cents. It's got a really cool Gil Kane cover with Morbius backhanding the six armed Spider Man and knocking him down some stairs. It's got a real dynamic look to it, and even with really not a lot of background. Uh, drawing in it, other than just lo- you know mostly just lines, it still creates kind of a Victorian Gothic Gothic look that really set the mood. Uh, the cover was created uh, was credited to Gil Kane, but when I look at it, I, I'm thinking it was drawn by Gil Kane and maybe inked by John Romita. 
but it's one of my all-time favorites. The story is called A Monster Called Morbius, which is the introduction of Morbius. This is his first appearance ever. Scripted by Roy Thomas, art by Gil Kane, inked by Frank Giacoya. The letters are by Artie Simic, and it is edited by Stan the Man Lee. So now, we open up with, with basically where we left off in issue 100, uh, where Spider-Man realizes he's got six arms and he's starting to freak out. And uh, he's panicking a little bit, and he falls into a little bit of a self-pity party. While he's in that mode, Gwen calls him up and invites Peter to take him to the movies and suggests that they go see this softcore movie. So uh, It's called I Am Curious Yellow, which I've never seen, but I understand it to be quite racy. So, you know, I'm thinking... Uh, I have the novelization if with pictures. <laughs> I'm thinking that two-armed Peter was going to get some that night from Gwen had he not blown her off but he's got six arms and you can only imagine how he could have made her happy with six arms I was just going to say that's the bonus yeah nah she'd be like you're just all hands tonight but he 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 blows her off and he kind of acts like a dick to her and when he does it and uh you know and also I I would just comment in the Gil Kane art dash he gave her like a real sexy face too so Peter should be regretting the hell out of this so then, uh, as soon as as soon as that's done, uh, where would I got lost here now? Hold on, I got my notes. Oh yeah, I, I forgot to, this. Uh, you know, he he kind of acts like a dick to her. She uh, she asks like why he's being so strange to her. Did she do something? And he says, "Why? Got a guilty conscience." And basically, end, they end the call. Now, at the time, that was really being dicky because, you know, she was kind of like sweet as can be. But then when you look back on what they did in recent years with the retcon from JMS, this would have been shortly after she had given birth to Norman uh, Osborne's twins, which he was unaware of. So maybe he did have a reason to be that way to her. Yikes. I don't know. I don't know how familiar you are with that. Not at all with that. No. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> uh Norman knocked her up, and when she went to England, which was probably about seven, eight issues before this, it was to, to give birth to twins that eventually came back to haunt Peter. Oh, jeez. So we go on from that scene, and Peter imagines what life is going to be like with six arms. And in one of my favorite panels ever in the history of comics, he, he thinks about what it's going to be like when he comes in to tell Aunt May about it. And they have her standing in what appears to be the kitchen and Peter's walking through the back door, but he's in his casual Peter clothes and he's got a, I guess a windbreaker or a light jacket on, but the jacket actually has six arms. So, so Peter, you know, in his desperation to let him know what's going on, stopped at a tailor and had this jacket custom made beforehand. And go tell, I guess he, well, that he, must've been an interesting scene in itself. Yeah. Uh, so you know you got to wonder why she has heart attacks all the time you know (laughs) so then in in an effort to pile as much angst on as possible peter gets a call from uh, joe robbie with a uh, photography assignment that peter has to turn down saying that he's going to the country to rest and that makes joe angry and or it makes joe worried and makes uh, jjj angry pete thinks to call kurt connors the resident expert 
It's his home and lab, which is conveniently located in Hampton, even though Connors is in Florida. I, I, I know a lot of New York people have Florida homes, but I didn't know Florida people had New York homes. But Connors agrees to that. And Peter acts like a douche again and hangs up on uh, the fear that he's going to say something. Uh, of course, why he didn't say something and kind of let Connors know what was going on. Connors might be him extra arms himself. Be that as it may, Peter decides to go up to the He realizes that he can't just travel in a traditional way with six arms, so he starts to web-swing his way away, and he's thrown off, his balance is thrown off by the extra arms, and he smacks into a building. That is the sound effect that you get when he hits into it. Uh, he eventually finds... Is it with an E, not with an A? K. He slams into the, wind, the, the building and it says smack. <laughs> so he, he uh, hitches a ride on top of the Long Island Railroad train and walks up to what looks like a really, really creepy beach home. And, and in a very dramatic moment, he says he feels an aura emanating from it of death and decay. That's the place you want to borrow. <laughs> you want to buy a beach home? I got one with death and decay coming off of it. It's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> then we cut to the from the Hamptons to uh, a ship that we're told is less than a mile away. And there's a bunch of sailors meeting on the deck, probably talking in the Bill Robinson pirate voice. We <laughs> the evening before. And they say that they that they had found someone adrift in the middle of the ocean and have and, and crewmen have been vanishing ever since. So what do you do? You're a mile away from shore. Let's stay out here and take care of this ourselves. That's right. These dead people. It's fine. So they go down, beat the truth out of him. Uh, he pretty much beats up all of them and runs away. And then without any actual evidence, they come to the conclusion that he must have fallen overboard. And again, rather than go in and you know that one mile and go to shore. They all go down to the to the lower decks and go to bed. And for reasons I don't really understand, uh, Doctor Morbius changes from his regular clothes into his Morbius costume, and then he kills all of the crew by dawn. And he starts to feel some uh, self-loathing for having done this, and he leaps into the water and swims to shore. And of course, comes up conveniently by Doctor Connor's home where he flies into an upper floor and goes to sleep. Then we cut down to the lab where Spider-Man is attempting to work on a cure for his condition and getting frustrated with his inability to get anywhere. Morbius sees him and swoops down in a moment of bloodthirst. The two of them dance around, and Peter comes to the conclusion that the guy's wearing a vampire costume until Morbius actually tries to bite him in the throat. And then... Basically, Peter's too tired to fight him off, having been up for two days. And we have a great full-page shot, which kind of echoes the cover, where Morbius basically knocks Peter down the stairs, or Spider-Man down the stairs, to the floor below, where he falls unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. Morbius is ready to feast on him when Dr. Connors comes walking in. Connors evades a lunging Morbius. But the excitement transforms him into the lizard, and the two of them start to argue which one of them is going to get to kill Spider-Man. And the issue ends with Spider-Man regaining consciousness and seeing Morbius on one side of him and the lizard on the other side, both ready to attack. And 
have another one of my favorite ever, which may make me need to do issue 102 one day. <laughs> I think you could put the sound effect in there for Spider-Man looking at the two of them going, There's so many plot contrivances to this story, which I, I tried to point out most of them as I was doing my recap. But despite that, this is one of my favorite storylines ever. I love this story. I mean, it's it's just some of the logic really bad. But I, I think that was more a byproduct of the era that it was written in, with it mm-hmm. to pack so much information into one issue, whereas now this, this issue alone would e- easily be a six-issue story. You know, going through everything just in, in excruciating... Yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that. I mean, I, I I think, you know, in order to make things quicker, that's why they had the ship one mile away, which which makes no sense from a logic point of view. Like I said, you know, you, you, you just wouldn't stop a mile away and then say, hey, you know what, let's all go to sleep and let him kill us. <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever you have to, you report the fact that your captain was, you know, killed. I think there's a lot of stuff in there that they just, you know, for... Con- yeah, there's there's usually a whole protocol that you would want to follow in somebody when there's a casualty. Well, not only is it a casualty, but they said, you know, crewmen have been disappearing. So. Well, I mean, they're probably echoing, you know, the whole Dracula story with the boat. Oh, I definitely yeah. think that's what they were looking for. That That's the teeth they were going for. But, again, you know, the, the effort to... to tie it in to have it close to where Peter is so that you could have Morbius meet up with him. Uh, the weakness of it. But it definitely had a, a spooky feel to it. And and it's not one that you saw in comics very often in those days. I mean, you got to remember the Comics Code prevented vampires for a very long time. And just when they lo- loosened up and started to let them have, you know, Basically, horror characters, which eventually led to a total resurgence, you know, with Tomb of Dracula and uh, Werewolf by Night and, you know, all the different horror books that they came out with. Wasn't Morbius, was he called like a scientific vampire or something? Because he never, you know, he, he never got killed by a vampire and and resurrected. And, yeah, he, he was, right. he was, I, I think they give the origin in issue 102. Uh, where you know he had a blood disease and he was working on it, and, that, and eventually, mm-hmm. you know, as as all scientists do in these stories, eventually took his own cure, and it turned out to transform him into this monster. But again, I will have to get to issue 102 at a later date because we do one issue at a time, and I also don't want to you know overload Spider-Man, so I'm definitely not going to do it next episode. But eventually, we'll get around to that one. It reminds me, I got a um. I think it was the essential, the first volume of the essential um, Tomb of Dracula. And I think there's a couple Morbius stories in there. Oh, really? I keep wanting to call him Morpheus. Yeah, well, I, I think that's... I think, Yo. There you go. <laughs> I, th- like, cause I, I, I think, like, the cover of it, if I'm recalling what the cover of it looks like, I think, like, the cover of it is him fighting... Morph- Morbius. <laughs> now I'm screwing myself up. I, I, 
I keep meaning to. I have the. Uh, I, I think I have three different Dracula essentials. And to sit down and just kind of go through all of them, and and I got to think that the Gene Colan art in black and white is going to look beautiful. Yeah, you know, some some stuff the the color enhances. I don't think Gene Colan is one of them. I think uh, it, with Gene Colan, the the color takes away from his pencils. It was it was hit and miss. Every once in a while, you would get like an issue where it was beautiful, where some you know. And it, but it would almost be black and white, but it would be just a lot of muted blues and stuff like that. But the problem with Gene Colan is if it was all nighttime, dark, scary stuff, and if you and you wanted to color it darkly, but it would you would end up with these really dark comics that would look really muddy. And that's yeah, there's none of that at all in the in the essentials. And I love that they're on that like newsprint. Mm-hmm. paper i love that i love the way comics look on the newsprint i net once it started getting all backstory and nicer quality paper i know it's gonna last longer but you know i mean the, the comic i'm doing tonight is just what one year younger than me and it's it's battered up but it's still it's still in decent shape it's aged but I like when old stuff ages, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I, we've t- I'm not really too concerned that when I'm 80 that all my comic book pages are white. <laughs> I just want them to be with me. Mine, <laughs> mine. About how, like, when you used to walk into those old comic stores and you'd smell that mm. mildewy old book smell. This, this, yeah, yeah, it's... And sometimes... In the old days, there was like this spray that they that people that had magazines that were like, I want to preserve that they would spray on magazines to make them. It was almost like putting your clothes on mothballs. And sometimes you'll find somebody who has a collection of old comics and it has that musty smell plus a sort of chemical tone to it. It's awesome. <laughs> Old bookstore smell is like one of my favorite smells of all time. Yeah, me too. So, yeah, that's the way a lot of my books smell because I'm like a lot of the books that I've got over the years, I've, I've gone through to, to old, older bookstores. And yeah, although it's kind of like a reflex because I get that smell and then I want to go to the bathroom and read. <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys got anything on this one? Um, I like. Uh, Gil Kane, the way he draws eyes, like like when people are freaked out. I mean, his uh, his crazy eyes are great. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, it's just so intense, piercing. Yeah, Gil Kane, you know, Gil Kane for me is always famous for having that up nose shot. Yes. And yes. And Morbius with his pug nose. Oh God, it's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> He's made for you know. I I, I wonder. If... You know, I, I would love to know if Gil Kane actually designed the character or if, you know, like John Romita designed it and gave it to, you know, Kane to put in the book or, you know, how it, how it came about. I've never heard anything about it. Well, he he really looks like a bat. He looks more like a bat than, you know, mm-hmm. than anything else. Yeah, which is exactly why he puts on that costume. It's just yeah. from a logic point of view, I'm not sure why he puts it on. From a storytelling point of view, I can't figure it out. Where did he get the costume from? I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since I read these. I'm wondering if in, in issue 102, I wouldn't be at all surprised 
if it turns out that he it it that it's some sort of a uh, you know part of the treatment that he was giving himself that he had this costume that he had you know this this you know this suit to expose himself to the radiation or whatever that he was taking. Uh, it's probably it's probably uh there's probably a shipment of circus performers costumes on that boat. <laughs> How in trunk. Yeah, it came trunk. out of a trunk. But you know, steamer trunk. Re- reading issue 100 made me want to read issue 101, and reading issue 101 made me want to read issue 102. So, I definitely have to get to that one. They did their job. Any good ads? Uh, you know, I find that the comics of this era were, were dealing with, you know, basically there was a lot of like the college dropout type ads. <laughs> How to get your GED or how to get a career in doing whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trained to be a so-and-so. Hey, man, I don't know. There's an ad here for a Polaris nuclear sub that's over seven feet long. Big enough for two kids for $7. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it, that was that was in like that, that age of comics where a lot – where, I mean – you know, we, we sort of think it was think of it as the 80s and 90s when adults started getting into comics. But, you know, during this time, that Marvel, you know, renaissance of of more, I guess, realistic characters or whatever, you know, it was, you know, pop stars were writing songs about, you know, superheroes and citing them as like, their, you know, as their heroes and stuff. So, yeah, so I guess maybe the ads would definitely get targeted more towards the the one I have is from 1969 and that's pretty much that's a little before that. Mm. And it's pretty much all kids <laughs> ads in in this one. Mm. But yeah, I mean this one's got the uh what is it? The International Correspondence Schools where, where the guy gets hit on the head with a box and he, can, he can't go back to a labor job anymore so he takes the correspondence school course and becomes an executive <laughs> that's, that's that's a great one uh you get jim steranko posters four for four for a dollar oh yeah those are nice oh, those, those are nice looking then you get the muscle they're probably not going for four for a dollar anymore no you get the muscle building tools that uh you know to play with the uh the comic nerd make him, you know, get big and be able to fight back. Do you ever fantasize? Do you guys ever fantasize about like going back in time to like the, the you know, the the 70s or when we were kids or in the 60s and stuff, and basically just going back in time and finding an old $50 bill and just buying every toy that you ever, you know, ever wanted. Oh yeah. Or, or I just fantasize about just finding all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Go into the Mile High Comics ad and buy all the comics that were in there. No, yeah, yeah. Saying, you start thinking, oh, if, if I could find a place where they were selling it at this price, what would I buy? <laughs> and I re- well, you see, I remember looking at those Mile High Comics ads going, I can't afford that. <laughs> yeah. $5? Are you kidding me? I mean, not... For Daredevil 181? Not in 1970, but around 1974, 1975, I did follow up on like some of these uh, ads where it's you know send send the self-addressed stamped envelope and 50 cents and they'll send you their uh, their catalog, and and I, I I did buy some books from places like that, but I generally found that it was better to do it at the uh, the hotel conventions. 
because you could see what you were getting because sometimes the quality of of the books that you were getting weren't weren't quite up to what they should be right yeah you had sort of had to take it on faith yeah that's exactly it all right so we ready to go to dc that's me and this one this one i got at a garage sale for i think like a quarter uh, last summer, and uh, I picked it up just because it had, it's in beat up shape. The cover's about to fall off. It's a uh, Aquaman 45 from 1969 with a 12 Centuru cover on it. And I can't remember when I bought it the the cover art. I thought for sh- I can't remember who I thought it was, but it is not who I thought it was. It was Nick Cardi and Ron Lim, and it has Ron Lim. Wow. back then and it's a beautiful cover it's all orange and green um different shades of orange and green and it's got this sort of sandy shore with a, a dead looking aquaman with a sign on it that says wanted by the underworld dead or alive of course with a live crossed out and a weeping girl in the dunes off to the side just beautifully illustrated and then when you open it up there's just a jarring <laughs> change in the quality of the art. And uh, and I just, I, I'm whipping this off, so I don't have any prepared notes or anything, but uh, so I'm just going to go off the top of my head. But uh, edited by uh, Dick Gior- Giordano, is that how it's pronounced? A script by Steve Skeets, or Skates, and art by Jim Aparo. And um, this is going to be a disjointed one because... It seems like it takes place in the middle of about two or th- two, at least two, probably three storylines. <laughs> and it's called Underworld Reward Part Two. And it starts out just simply with Aquaman beating the ha- holy hell out of two goons in a dark alley. And then it has a great. Um, uh, panel here it's a last issue the underworld put a price on Aquaman's head a big reward for whoever finished off the fish man and that's all we're going to tell you now the following dialogue should fill you in on everything else you need to know <laughs> which is great it's like don't worry here comes some exposition and apparently Aquaman was doing something aqua near the 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 docks and um in a typical it's funny this is drawn in a very crime story comic style it's it's not a very aqua story it's a very organized crime on the docks sort of story but apparently aquaman was doofing around in the water and somebody was offed but in their with their last dying breath they like set, said just a garbled mess of words to aquaman and um he sent some random lady off, I guess, to to tell the cops that somebody got killed. And apparently, <clears throat> so whatever that guy knew, it was important because the underworld thinks Aquaman knows it now. So there's a price on Aquaman's head, which Aquaman does not take kindly to. And after he beats up all these two goons, he uh, waits till one of them wakes up and just threatens to just pummel him if he doesn't tell him you know who put the price on his head and the goon says i don't know it just came from up above but i know a middleman and so aquaman puts on a little seedy disguise and 
and it, and his information leads him to a bar where you know the the uh, a big guy you know a big um underworld type guy is is talking to all his thugs about you know how they need how they need aquaman how they need aquaman dead and that that leads him to find out that the girl he sent with the message to the police got picked up by another goon and they have her and they're trying to figure out what the message was and aquaman's really pissed now because he got this girl involved in in you know in this whole mess and now she's kidnapped by thugs so he goes follows the goon who who said that he kidnapped the girl back to his lair and comes in and once again over or over the course of two pages just readily whoops all the all the bad guys unties the girl and starts trying to figure out you know what's what's going on here gets the girl to one of her friends uptown and and sort of leaves her there to hopefully in safekeeping and uh goes to figure out why they want Aquaman dead and uh so he goes and threatens the 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 crime boss and it all basically is uh leading to there's some sort of secret something going on in the under, underground underneath the the city but as all this is going on we cut to storyline 2 where i don't know what what is going on it's aqualad has been kidnapped by some weird people who are cowardly and i think they've kidnapped him in order to fight this big demony creature who sort of looks like a seahorse mixed with the uh there's always a bigger fish fish from episode one and uh he's being very super he it's funny he the the way he's drawn um swimming around underwater he looks like a cross between superman and and uh shazam billy batson more than than aqualad though i'm not very familiar with how aqualad is supposed to look so basically yeah there's three or four pages of aqualad having an internal monologue about how the people who who kidnapped him are cowards and are running off and now he has to fight this creature and then we leave him never to see him again in the comic and aquaman is uh meanwhile tracking down the source of of um whatever's going on and he's going into a sort of lex luthor superman the movie type underground layer off the subway through a hole with some guards watching a door and when he busts through it's funny, there's sort of a fat, mustachioed mixture of Lex Luthor and the Kingpin in there with a with a mad scientist guy who, once again, we don't have, there's no, nobody has any idea what's going on except this guy's got this big, complicated machine and they're just about to turn it on and it's very important that nobody messes with this machine because whatever it's doing is is super intense. Aquaman doesn't care. He's a honey badger. He he's he he just don't he just don't care. And he starts beating everybody up, threatens a scientist who's going, "Please let me just please work with my machine. Don't beat me up, Aquaman." Aquaman don't care. Um scientist tries to tries to fix his machine desperately and ends up getting frizzle fried. So um, Aquaman, at this point, starts to really get the hint that maybe he should have let the scientists do his thing because the machine's starting to make a lot of noise. 
Things are starting to vibrate. He says, time to get out of Dodge. Runs down a corridor and sees a window and notices he's deep underwater. And just as he realizes that, a huge explosion blasts him out the window. But he's Aquaman, so he can take the pressure of of the deep sea. And so just as he's recovering from the explosion, there's a huge whirlwind. And here's where we get to, I think, storyline number three, which is something that maybe happened, you know, in the last issue or back issue. He starts sort of flashing back on another whirlwind cycle underwater cyclone that um the blue way it now is this is this his girlfriend or his wife uh, Mira M E R A that's his wife his wife he he well, starts it, seeing it, visions it, of her and and Aqualad and sorcerers and and um what looks like maybe the thing that Aqualand is fighting. So he may be going through some sort of Wizard of Oz, underwater Wizard of Oz thing. So he's in a, in a whirlpool. And then all of a sudden, kablam! It, there's a, a huge explosion, and he blacks out. But when he wakes up, he's in sort of a cavern. He's He's out of the water, and there is Mira sitting there. And uh, just so, sort of doing the, but darling, let me explain. He says, it can't be, it can't be. And then he passes out cold, thinking that he still must be dreaming. So I don't know what, what's going on in this. <laughs> it's it's all over the place. It's, it's weird. It's like uh, starts out as a, a true crime story, sort of. It's more of a double-fisted fight in the mob sort of story and and the art goes along with it it has that it has almost like that sketchy ec look to it mm-hmm. this this whole comic is weird there's a lot of like half pages with a half page ad or like a third of the page ad for like revel models and stuff i don't remember of any of that yeah, they, they used to do that that yeah. ad, they used to do that every once in a while i think there was a thought of uh that maybe by doing that you'd you'd pay more attention to the ad than if it was mm-hmm. the page by itself. Mm-hmm. You'd integrate it into the story and thus, thus. But it, yeah, I've never really noticed that before, and it was really, I wouldn't say jarring, but it was just it was just very strange. And uh, there's, there's a couple of them in here. There's there's a really weird one that's an ad for a Phantom Stranger comic. And, uh, you know, which I guess the official title of it says the comic says, follow me for I am the Phantom Stranger. And so it's in one corner, it's the Phantom Stranger. And there's this big arrow that says, are you prepared to? And I guess it's supposed to go, are you prepared to follow me for I am the Phantom Stranger? But it looks just more like they got the wrong two ads mixed up. And it just looks like, are you prepared to the Phantom Stranger? I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> I think the the Phantom Stranger at that point goes to what I was saying with uh, the Morbius issue, where you know they had just started uh, relaxing the uh, comics code. I mm-hmm. this is you know just shortly before that, so in order to get the feel of an EC comic, you know the horror comics of like the fifties, they couldn't do it in the 
traditional horror way. They had to integrate it into a story with, you know, a, a, a hero or a character like the Phantom Stranger. So this way it wasn't truly a horror comic. But if you look at that cover, mm-hmm. you know, he's standing there. He's got the little boy standing by him that he's obviously protecting. And you got some sort of creature coming up from what looks like the sewer. That I, I think that was the, you know, that was their way of getting by the comics code a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a superhero comic, so maybe it wouldn't get attention paid to it too. And it's really funny because this is a sort of cri- a, a two-fisted crime comic, but they they also pull back with this with Aquaman when he's beaten up. At one point, he's got a gun on this one guy, and it's like, "You're a super you're a superhero. You're not going to shoot me." And he's just thinking to himself, "That's true. <laughs> I can't shoot him, but I can threaten to break his arm." Well, you know, um, I was surprised that this is uh, – you mentioned that this reminds you of a crime comic. Mm-hmm. Jim Parro would later go on to do a lot of Batman. And, you know, for me, that's always what I remember Jim Aparo for is for his, his, his work on Batman. And, you know, I can – I mean, and this is like – this is – I've never seen this old of Jim Aparo work, and it's, and it's like it's, it's – you know – it's in its infancy, you know, because I've seen where it, it, it went and this is where it began. It's kind of like a lot how we talked about uh, John Romita Jr. a few episodes ago and, and how his artwork changed also. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much what you said. I mean, I, I remember Jim Aparo's artwork very fondly from the Batman books. He mm-hmm. is really my Batman artist. I'm not saying he's the best Batman artist of all time. But he's the artist. When I think of Batman, that's the art I, I immediately think of. Uh, this is not as polished. I don't know if it has anything, you know, if the inking enters into it. But uh, I, I was looking at it like some of the backgrounds, some of them are fine, but some of them seem to be very, very sparse. Mm-hmm. And I think that takes away from it a little bit. Uh, I was also looking at virtually through the whole book uh, with with only a couple of exceptions the, most most of the pages don't have your traditional type grid with you know right angles on the panels, uh, you know, and and I think that's the influence of uh, Neil Adams at this time. Mm-hmm. He, he was the first one I know of to really break that mold. And the cover is very Neil Adamsy. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gave them, uh, you know, if he if he was involved in just kind of like the design in some way, even if he didn't draw it. Because it does, if if you didn't tell me anything else, I, I then my first thought would be that it was a Neil Adams cover. Mm-hmm. That's probably why I picked it up, why I was attracted to it. And me, Mr. Stupid here, I just realized that the the people that Aquaman drops the girl off for safekeeping looks like Clark Kent. Yes. So, see, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't, I thought the guy just looked like Clark Kent because... He, you know, he's like, I don't want to take you home to your home territory, and it looks like it's her that goes. I've got some friends who live live uptown. Maybe, maybe it was supposed to be Aquaman that's saying that, or unless she's somehow friends with Superman, or or Clark Kenton doesn't know he's Superman. But obviously, Clark Kenton, whoever, um, I don't know who the blonde woman is. Yeah, but they seem to know who Aquaman. They seem to know Aquaman. They don't seem to know just know who he is, but they seem to know him. So I'm not really sure what's hmm. 
what's supposed to be going on. I, it would have helped to to have re- read on either end of. Oh, but that's not Superman. He's he's not wearing a tie. <laughs> but he lends him a top coat. Here, have a top coat. That'll go well with your green pants. One here. And I think it's really weird that the little supporting comedy story on here is such an adult sort of. Oh yeah, yeah. Adult sort of gag. It's it's not like something maybe from an adult magazine, but it was like a like a girly magazine, but close to it. You know, it's. There's some uh, double entendre there. Yeah, there's some. The big cannon will go off soon. <laughs> yeah, well, the little cannon just got him a hug, so what does that imply that the big cannon's going to get? It's just totally out of place. And <laughs> and, and, and the, the scene of the two guns going off with the bang and the placement, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of phallic work going on there. Seesaws. You also have two uh, text pieces in this issue, which I understand back in the... 50s text pieces or even in the 40s I think the text pieces in the books somehow qualified them for some sort of a different type of shipping rate for subscriptions ah and I, I don't I don't remember exactly how that worked but there's something along those lines that if they had a certain amount of text in it they uh, you know they, they could I don't I don't know if it's if it qualified as a magazine as opposed to a comic. And and it got them a discount on the shipping, so they would they would go out of their way out of their way to have those. I don't know if by 1969 if they did that, but it looks like this is from you know something to do with Detective Comics 27 from 1939. I didn't read it, so I don't know. Well, this is actually it's very dry. It's 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 almost like an article from a comics. It's way ahead of like a comics magazine. It's actually like. It's a fact file, and it's literally just full, full of facts and, and information about it, written in a very dry adult style. It's kind of neat. It's 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 kind of neat because it's probably just chock full of really good historical information. It's not usually when you would see something text in a comic book, it would be a story. Right. And th- some of those were the wackiest stuff you would ever read because they would just be and written in a you know weird sort of jolly style you know what i mean just sort of yeah my book tonight has a has a text story in it with uh at the end of it as i understand that's how stanley got his start that he was doing text pieces for uh captain america that was his, his first comic work well, I think really the last thing I got on this one is uh, it had a great back cover for glow-in-the-dark Aurora monster um, models with a lot of – it looks like you got the Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy. The only one that they're really lacking of the classics is like the Gill Man, and there's a skeleton too. I don't see Donald Trump anywhere. No Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump's uh, hair is on the Wolfman. <laughs> it was before Donald Trump got his hands on it. I don't know. It could have been Dracula's hair, too, actually, looking at Dracula's hair. <laughs> actually, it could have been the mummies, too. It could be that's some pretty mummified shit he's got there. Years ago, I uh, I made it my uh, mission to, to 
obtain a lot of those old models and I, uh, you know, got them and repainted them and, and then just, I, I love those, you know, I had those as a kid in my room. They're, they're a great collector's Holy grail. Those things, those are, they, they, they'll, they'll fetch a pretty penny on eBay. Plus they're cool as hell. Yeah. I, I always loved character models. Like one of my favorites all time was, uh, there was a classic of Mr. Spock. Um, the snake? sometimes it, it was, sometimes it was with the snake and some, and they made a version of it where they didn't put the snake in, where it was just sort of him posing with the phaser. I have that one. That's a great, great model. I used to have it. I have it and I've been meaning actually recently to, cause I haven't done one in a couple of years, but I have that one and I've been meaning to put it together and, and paint it. Oh my God. That'll be so fun. So that's uh, when I, when I get that done, I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. We'll use it for the art for one of our Star Trek monthly Mondays. And I, I, you know, the listeners can't see this, but I just threw a couple of pictures of my uh, Aurora models and the dialogue here for you guys to see. Well, if if there's any that you need, make a list of any that you need, because I'm about I'm about two or three weeks away from garage sailing. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that because I I definitely enjoy those. I I. I really hate the fact that the character models have kind of gone by the way. So, mm-hmm. you know, not too many people make models at all anymore. And when they do, it's, you know, the cars and that stuff, which I never got as much of a kick out of, but I have a couple of them, you know, when I was going crazy trying to get them all, uh, a bunch of them I have that I've made already, but then I have a couple that are still in the box that I'm doing, which, uh, I have, uh, the Spock one. I have one of the monsters. Oh, Wow. And I also have uh, a, a Cornelius from Planet of the Apes. Oh, awesome! So I, I got to get working on those. Wow, the monsters one must be really neat. Is it the like the whole clan? Yeah. So I'm assuming they're. Ooh. I haven't even opened the box yet. I'm assuming they're all really small in there. Uh, but I bought it at like a you know one of these you know these odd lot type stores. I think you know, I think I paid like 4.99 for it or something like that. Jeez. So it's modern. Yeah. Oh wow. They they did have reissues of a lot of these like the uh mm-hmm. the horror ones they originally came out in the 60s and then they re-released them I think around 1990 or so. Well, I was thinking if you had an original I was thinking if you had an original Spock or an original Monsters and their box not put together, those must those would have cost a pretty penny. Probably the Monsters one would be really expensive. Yeah, no, neither of them is original and neither one cost all that much money and I, That's I, good. I'm a big guy on I don't want to buy stuff so that I can keep it in the original box and you know, I, I want to open it and I want to put it together and I want to display it. It's a model. It's actually going to be exactly like the original ones. You know, they probably took the molds out and and just made the the molds and probably reprinted the instructions and everything. So, you know, unless you're unless you're going to be like fetishing over, you know, oh, this is an old original. Yeah, no, it's 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 the fun of putting them together. It's just like the fun of reading comics. And on the uh, on the the horror ones. Basically, I had gotten ones that were were already put together and painted, uh, although poorly. And I would, you know, I, I 
took them and I tried to repair anything, any cracks or any broken pieces, and then I repainted them myself. Ready to go to our Into Indie Land? Well, one last thing on, on this is uh, that this is the this came well it's it's print cover says june which is the month june 1969 is the month i was born i know it probably came out a few months before that but it's just neat that this is a book that came out you know in the month i was born supposedly so that's always cool cool to see because i've got a couple you know books like that fantastic four avengers so you're not sure if you were born is that what you're trying to say Spawn. Oh, supposedly when the comic came out. Okay. Yes. Supposedly. I get it now. <laughs> All right. Are we ready for the? Well, if that is I'm, your real name. <laughs> I'm independent. Oh, that's a story. And it's, that's a podcast yeah? in itself. We don't have time Me for that too. <laughs> I'm. Whatever you said. Independent. Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? All right, for the indie, we have – I have picked a Charlton comic from August of 1976, The $6 Million Man, Volume 1, Number 2, cover price of $0.30. Cents. Unfortunately, I, I do not know who did the cover. And again, this looks like it could be – does uh, anybody have any clue on, on, on this cover, Paul? Uh, I was thinking it was also Joe Staten. But I could be wrong. Mm, yeah, I guess. It's definitely more detailed than the work inside. I'm gonna, while you do it, I'm going to try and look on the comic book DB and see if I can find it. Okay, because there is a signature down at the bottom right, but I can't really see what it what it is. I, it, wait a minute, is that could that be that that might be Neil Adams? It looks like a Neil, right by the hand at the bottom of the cover. See it? Like an N-E-A-L? Definitely, I do see what you're saying. Yes, it is a Neil Adams, so it's not even nearly a Joe Staten. Mm. Oh. Adams signature. So I yep. swung and missed on my Neil Adams cover, and you connected this with the $6 million man, of all things. <laughs> Excuse me. Knocked it out of the park. Okay. Uh, script on this was by Nicola Cuddy. Art, Joe Staten, coloring Wendy Fiore, and edited by George Wildman. Our story is titled The Effigy, or uh, my alternate uh, title is from a Cole Porter song, uh, Do That Voodoo That You Do So Well. Um, we see Colonel Steve Austin on an operating table. Two men are having a conversation regarding our hero. It is revealed <clears throat> that it is, in fact, not the real bionic man, but a carefully crafted doll-sized facsimile. All the parts are to scale. I don't know if they're fully functional, and I don't want to know. And it has an atomic power unit. One of our two subjects turns to the other and asks, How would you like to be paid? In paper, gold, silver, or lead? Blam, blam, blam. Gunshots ring out, and the man that created the masterpiece is dead. The murderer did not go unseen, though, as it was seen by the bionic eye of the cyborg doll and transmitted over 100 miles away to the real Steve Austin. Meanwhile, Steve is driving with Oscar Goldman when he suddenly sees a murder taking place before him. Freaking out, he goes off the road and crashes. Oscar whines about the damage to his car, 
which Steve, who apparently moonlights as an auto body repairman, fixes with his bionic strength. The two continue on back to OSI, the Office of Scientific Intelligence, to try to find out what went wrong with Steve. We return to Dr. Dreyfus's lab, yes, the man who was killed moments ago. His murderer, Mr. Land, is contemplating his next move. Through internal monologuing and spoken exposition, for no apparent reason, we learn that Dreyfus had been making miniature models of nuclear subs, moon rockets, and atomic-powered bombers for Mr. Land's country. Uh, I guess maybe there's a little pushing uprising somewhere that uh, you know, needed quelling, needed all these miniaturized uh, bombers and everything. So anyway, the cops arrive, and uh, Mr. Land goes on the lamb out the window to evade capture. On the way, he ditches little Steve with a little girl who hangs out in the alley. The girl likes the doll, but tells her stuffed dog, Bugsy, that she can't keep her new friend, uh, can't keep his new friend, and tosses him near, into the nearby garbage. Little Steve is in danger, though, as the angry dog in the alley takes out his frustrations on him. And he's tossed about like a, uh, like, like a nice new toy. Big Steve, in the meantime, has returned to OSI headquarters for an eye test to determine the cause of his earlier hallucination. Suddenly, Steve sees a giant dog lunging towards him. Oscar and Rudy Wells begin to wonder if it's time to drug test Colonel Austin. Maybe he has a $6 million habit as well. Inexplicably, he begins to rise into the air and is tossed around the room like a rag doll. Q Aerosmith. Mr. Land has doubled back around and located the little girl he left in the left left little Steve with. He starts to push her push her around looking for the doll. She tells him she left it in the alley. Lucky for the little girl though, her rather large father arrives and Mr. Land beats feet. And I have to question uh the parenting skills uh for leaving your kid unattended in a back alley. Um what? Is that wrong? Oh well we never do that. Maybe not in 1976. It wasn't. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you okay. don't know how how well he likes that kid. You don't know what their backstory is. <laughs> and plus, plus the face that that the guy has when the dad walks up, he's just got that you know Chester Chester the molester face, like eh, nice kid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing anything. <laughs> Our story returns to Big Steve in the hospital, recovering from his uh, phyto, fa- phyto flashback. Uh, I mean, uh, doggy downer or canine conundrum, whatever you want to ha- wow. say that to him. Oscar and Steve uh, speculate that perhaps Steve was being controlled by some outside force. And at this point, I think Oscar is regretting not putting in that kill switch into the $6 million man. <clears throat> you know, yeah, it might be a nice way to shut this guy off when we need to. Uh, the two of them see a news report about a recent murder. It is the man from Steve's vision, Dr. Donald Dreyfus. Steve insists on leaving the hospital with Oscar to track down this lead. They arrive at the murder scene where the local police hand them sensitive government documents that are plans to the bionic man just on Oscar's say-so that he is with the OSI. Sounds legit. Yeah, sure. Hi, yeah, I'm with the OSI. Can I have those? Thanks. Appreciate it. While Steve and Oscar discuss the, uh, the plans and their theories as to what has been happening to him, Mr. Land is standing outside in the alley listening and hears the uh, 
that the small version is acting like a voodoo doll and that he can can uh, control Steve. Um, the and and the doll he has found it in uh, he's he's he found it in the alley and it's once again back in his possession. So okay, come on. This guy goes back to the scene of the murder, is standing outside the window, and the cops still can't find him. Okay, Oscar and Steve head out back to OSI while Lan goes to the place where um, Dreyfus had kept his, his doll parts, the aptly named doll shop. He meets a attractive redhead girl named Dolly. Sounds <laughs> and- legit. Sure, and states that Dr. Dreyfus should have uh, more copies of the doll he is holding and would like to have them. Dolly tells him she can make some duplicates in a few hours and to return later. Now having a source of more dolls, he plans to sell fake versions back to the OSI while keeping, keeping the original and giving it to his country as well for cash. After a conversation with Lan... Oscar and Steve travel to the Fantasto Toy Factory, which is the cover Land uses to smuggle the models. Now, they knew all this info, what he smuggles, where he is, but they haven't been able to catch him. Okay, great. Glad they're on top of things. And this um, – are you familiar with the 80s show Auto Man, Chris? No. I vaguely – they had a car on there that they could uh, – that the lead character, Auto Man, it was came like right out – I think it was after Tron came out, if I'm not – Yes, not. I think I saw like the first episode of it, and like he could get into the costume in the car or something. And the car turned at right angles when it when it went down? down. Yes. Okay, if, if you look at the panel on page – well, it's page 12 of the comic. All right, Oscar t- – Oscar – Starts driving the car and he's he's turning at forty five ninety and one hundred twenty degree angles around moving traffic <laughs> in that panel. Oh, I'm like, okay, so uh, Charlton Comics, yeah. So once they arrive at the toy factory, they enter with no warrant or police backup. Not that the cops would have helped anyway, since they couldn't catch Land when he was outside the window of where he committed the murder, and that they like to hand over documents to anybody who says they're with the OSI. So Steve uses his bionics to gain entry to, to the facility. Once inside, he poses as a worker. <laughs> he is able to bamboozle the foreman, idiot, and then bumps right into Mr. Land. Again, idiot. Land heads for the voodoo doll while the workers attempt to stop Austin. Steve has a one-sided battle with a forklift, <clears throat> takes on five or six guys at once, comes close to having molten lead dropped on him in a weird Terminator 2 callback, call ahead, whatever you want to call it. And by now the workers are freaked out by Austin and give up, only to have their wonderful employer, Mr. Land, shoot at them. I don't think he's going to win any points with OSHA on that one. Steve goes for Land, who... Uh, who uses the voodoo doll against Austin. But this time, nothing happens. It doesn't work. So he thinks, oh, I've got the duplicate. He runs into his office and grabs the other and slams its head on the desk, yelling, die, Austin, die. Again, no effect on Steve. He's able to he's able to disarm Land and cold cock him. But he's confused as to why the doll no, no longer worked. Then 
out of nowhere, the red-haired girl walks in and tells her that she is Katie Dreyfus. She was the daughter of Dr. Dreyfus, and that she had given land to and kept, oh, and kept the original and disabled the electronics so that Steve would no longer be controlled and free to catch her father's killer. She comments that she really likes him better than the miniature. Colonel Austin macks on her and says, you should get to know the real me tonight. The end. But wait, we have more. We have the last panel, which makes you realize that pretty much the whole thing that you've just read has been an ad for the Kenner Bionic Man action figure that you could pick up at your local department store with the repair station and the backpack radio. So I think I was just duped. <laughs> I got I, I got the action figure when I was a kid. I got the action figure, and I, it came with uh, an engine block and a oh. ratchet arm that would ratchet up and lift the engine block. And then I then he had the hole in the back of his head, and you could look through his head, and you could you know you could see you could peel the skin back on his arms, and he had electronics built into his arms. Mm-hmm. It was awesome, and these little holes, and if you had that and. Probably if you had the little, you know, power station thing, it had all sorts of little things that looked like gas pumps that came out and plugged into his arms and legs and chest. Yeah. I mean, but he's he's uh, right at the end there. He's just hitting on the girl. Hey, yeah, baby, let's go out. Well, yeah, you said, come on. <laughs> I think in typical Charlton comic style that this is, you know, a, a very adult and complex metaphorical story. It's really about Steve Austin's sex addi- addiction. Because <laughs> really, think about it. It's about how little Steve has control over Big Steve. Yeah. Come on, we know what that's about. We've all had we've all had little I've had I've had little Chris, you know, override Big Chris. <laughs> Well, then at the end there, there's another story um, called Winifew, which I actually read through, and basically it's about uh, – it opens up with how um, Steve Austin uh, basically threatens Oscar Goldman to let him go to a class reunion uh, because he says you know, he shakes o- Oscar's hand and applies a little pressure, and Oscar's arm goes numb. <laughs> Jeez. It says, it says, Steve reached out and took Oscar's right arm in his, right arm in his right hand. He only squeezed slightly, but Oscar went pale as his arm numbed slightly. <laughs> <laughs> little man, I could crush you like a bug. <laughs> Puts a little and, subtext into their relationship. Jeez, a little, maybe a little abusiveness. Yeah. So then Steve goes off, off to the, um, um, to the class reunion, and he wants to hide his abilities. And they're playing a game of touch football, and one of his buddies is his. It's, you know, the whole scene's in slow motion where the, the the guy's falling towards an overturned garbage can and there's all this broken glass and the guy's going to fall and then he takes off like a bat out of, you know, uses the bionic power and he runs over there and snatches the guy up before he slashes his face and his hand and all the broken glass. And I, everybody apparently just, I, maybe they were all too hammered from drink. He's like, wow, did you see Steve move so fast? That was amazing. He really, he saved Al from getting cut up. Wow, that's great. Like, are you kidding me? Give me this beer. Well, he was a, he was an astronaut, right? So maybe they just figured it was his astronaut training or his jet pilot training. It's astronaut speed. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, it. Yeah. So when I first 
first read this, you know, my read through, it was, it was, it was nostalgia. It was like, oh yeah, the $6 million man. But then Mm when, earlier today, uh, tonight, once you start really reading it and going to examine it and do a synopsis, it's like, wow, this is really big plot holes in this and just bad. That that was the thing about Charlton is kind of every once in a while you would find a nice little nugget of gold, but a lot of times you just sort of got the vibe that they didn't really completely care. You know, that it wasn't as tight a ship as Marvel. Not that Marvel and DC were probably tight ships. They were probably chaos. But yeah, Charlton just seemed that tier below, you know, everything like a tier or two below Marvel and DC. The stuffed dog Bugsy in the in the baby carriage with his tongue sticking, <laughs> and then then the evil green eyed what is the dog green with envy at the Steve Austin doll and has to attack it and just shake the living crap out of it. So the next panel he jumps up. Although that kind of reminded me of the Spider Man No More, you know Austin No More. Put him on the garbage can. The dog jumps up, throws him around. <laughs> but I mean, all in all, it was it was a nice quick read, but you know, it just fell apart later. Yeah, I mean the, the the basic conceit that you could just build just because Steve Austin has some mechanical parts that you could build a voodoo doll that would for one 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 thing I always wonder about is okay, so they have a voodoo doll, right? That that okay, whatever you do to the voodoo doll he's going to feel it or whatever it's going to happen to him but when you do stuff like the dog picks him up and starts shaking him how does that work with him going up in the air like he's being shaken by a by a dog you know he should probably just be quivering around on the ground right and then then um um I mean, the whole thing that that he has a mini atomic power unit. If you could put a mini atomic power unit in something, why would you make a replica of a of a? Yeah, I mean, this a lot of it just doesn't make any sense. But I mean, yes, it's a comic book. It's not supposed to make sense. But are they going to do the yes, comic yes. for for 15 years later when he's riddled with with cancer from the radiation of his atomic power unit? <laughs> I don't accept the premise that it's a comic. It's not supposed to make sense. You you create a set a set of rules for the existence that you're setting up in that comic, and it should make sense for that for those well, rules. I well, yep. I find it honorable that you don't accept that, but I have a feeling the good people at Charlton sometimes accepted that. <laughs> you know, you know, there were came a point when maybe a writer would be like, "Come on, just make sure it leads up to the ad at the end." Yeah, I'm sure the people at Charlton would say, you know, here's here's a picture of me not giving a shit that you don't that, that <laughs> make sense. I like the guy when he's in the big fight scene, the guy with the red sweater or jacket or whatever that hit, hits his leg and the crowbar or whatever wraps around his leg. Okay, that guy's got to be really strong to hit his leg and wrap that crowbar around it. And then he's just looking at it like, huh? <laughs> and they try to dump the molten lead on him. I mean, you know, it's all right, I guess. No, it's yeah. not. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's with Neil Adams cover and Joe Staten on. It was still awful. 
I mean, the cover is, I mean, you look at that cover, you know, he's, you see guys jamming a pin in the doll and Austin's arm is arcing and sparking and everything. And, and, you know, I mean, the art wasn't too bad, although the way they draw Mr. Land is like, he's pretty scary looking. I mean, granted, he is a murderer, you know, he. Uh, he's really freaky looking. Like half the time, he has no nose. He looks like he looks like Morbius, or Morpheus, depending on if you're Chris. <laughs> and and Morbius, Morbius, and that is a scary looking picture when uh, the little girl's dad. He's like hey. he he looks like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> you're a daddy, huh? What a lovely little girl <laughs> have here. So that's all I got. Yeah. Was I got nothing to add on this one? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny when I hear indie. I'm always expecting some like alternative, you know, something from the '90s or R. Crumb or something like that. So I was totally not expecting. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the Charlton Inquisition. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 